Father God, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us all together this morning as we sang earlier to magnify your name, the name of your Son, to come together corporately to bring worship to you and exaltation and praise and much glory. We thank you, Lord, for just the blessing it's been to our own souls to be together and to have the fellowship with the saints and, Lord, to sing and to pray and to fellowship. And now, Lord, as we open your word to see what it would say, what you would say to us through that word and through your Holy Spirit, Lord, living inside each of us who have trusted your Son. And Lord, help us to apply that word to our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us, your tremendous grace upon grace and new mercies. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Our text this morning will be from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. The title of this message is The Cost of Following Christ Are You a True Disciple? I'm going to begin with a statement that I I don't think many or even any of you might disagree with. The statement is this, folks. It seems that we live in a morally chaotic society now more than ever. Amen? We have seen biblical values just seem to kind of evaporate from the fabric of our country. We see society continually continuing to secularize at, at, at a rate that frankly makes our heads spin. We are living in a time where wickedness is celebrated. What was once wrong is now considered right. And of course, what was once right is now considered wrong. And frankly, to live a distinctly biblical life as a follower of Jesus out there in the world, in the public eye, is really like a salmon swimming upstream. We know well of that from where we came from in Weaverville and the Trinity River, and you would see these salmon, and they did. They had difficulties when there was drought years, and there's not enough water, and the water's too warm, and, and, and they're fighting obstacles and predators to get upstream. That is how we I think, find ourselves in, in this day and age living out our Christian life. Or, or worse than that, as society has even started to persecute and ostracize Christians for their beliefs. Now, unfortunately, one of the leaders of this moral degradation in our world is right here in our backyard, the entertainment industry, Hollywood, of which my made my living for 20 plus years as an actor before God called me into full-time ministry, which, (laughs) let me tell you, I am so thankful he did. (laughs) The moral decay in Hollywood never bothered me much until I became a believer, about two-thirds of the way into my career. But once that happened, I slowly saw how my Christian faith would start to dictate or should dictate the kinds of parts that I would play. And frankly, the parts that I felt comfortable accepting at that time became fewer and farther in between until God finally called me into full-time ministry. I remember while I was in seminary, probably getting into my last year of seminary or so, and I I was challenged by a brother to even consider if my call into full-time ministry might take me back into the entertainment industry. And so I kind of did a little bit of exploring there, and and I was thinking to myself, well, you know, what would I do? Maybe, you know, Hollywood, they got some pretty messed up people, you know? Maybe I could be like a studio chaplain or something, right? (laughs) Yeah, that would go over big until I started showing them what God's word said. And then how long would it be before, you know, the security would be like, uh, yes, escort Mr. Underwood off the lot, please. 
But it was interesting because I also looked into just some of the groups that are out there. I wanted to know, are there Christians out there in Hollywood? What, what, are, what are, some, are there Bible studies for Christians? Are there fellowship gatherings for Christians? Oh, yes. And might I do a shameless plug here for our cast and crew industry fellowship meeting that will have its third meeting tonight, 3.30 to 5, up in room 5. Would love to have you if you're an industry person in any shape, form, or fashion. But yes, here, here are some of the things that I learned Guess what? There are Christians in Hollywood. Yay. Secondly, a lot of them are scared. They're scared. They're scared to stand up for their faith. Because they know that Hollywood is typically ultra left-wing liberal and it doesn't take kindly to biblical values. Uh, Somebody like even Avengers star Chris Pratt has has been under fire for living out his Christian faith in the context of Hollywood. I remember one time when I was in seminary, and I was still doing some commercial work, and I would take just day parts here and there just to make ends meet. At that point, I don't care. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not in it anymore for the long haul. It's just bread and butter. And so I would show up to, uh, I was filming mostly commercials. I remember showing up to one commercial set one day, and I got my stack of uh, books that I got to read for seminary. So, you know, I'm, there's a whole lot of hurry up and wait. So I'm sitting there reading books all day and, and whatnot. And uh, at lunchtime, uh, the cameraman comes up to me and he, and he says, can I, uh, can I talk to you for a second? I said, yeah, yeah, sure. So he kind of pulls me aside away from the crowd and he says, um, I saw you reading those books. Uh, it said, I noticed, uh, it said John MacArthur on a couple of them. Is that, is that John MacArthur like radio, you know, guy on Bible guy on, on the radio, John MacArthur? And I go, yeah. And he goes, voice gets even lower. Are you a Christian? <laughs> I go, yeah. He grabs my hand, starts pumping it up and down. Man, so am I. So am I. And you were like, wow. Wow. He was so excited just to me. But everything was still kind of hush, hush off to the side. Let's not let anyone hear us. I thought, this is very interesting. So friends, today, in, in, in today's world of, of social and moral chaos, I would suggest to you that the stakes are even higher for Christians. And then, of course, it doesn't help when we see that there are some churches and pastors who are even now reinterpreting the Bible to include things like evolution and abortion and euthanasia and homosexuality. Six years ago, six years ago, Pope Francis, if you remember, visited the United States. And uh, he avoided, like the plague, unpopular topics such as these. You know what else he avoided? I don't know if you remember, but he actually got to address a joint session of Congress. He was the first pope to ever do that. And you know what he did not say in that joint address? Not once did the leader of the Catholic Church ever mention the name Jesus. Not once. Yet you and I, friends, even in the midst of this moral chaos, are still called by Christ to be his disciples. We are still called to carry our cross and to follow him even in the midst of this chaos. But then we have to ask ourselves, really, what does that mean? What does it mean to carry your cross? I'm glad you asked, because this is what we are going to find out today. And I will tell you up front, it will not be the popular thing to do. And rest assured, it will not be easy. So here we are in our text of Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. And our text today uh, comes at the latter part of Jesus' earthly ministry, which is appropriate as in Mark. We are seeing the the end of Jesus' ministry. But this is just before he gets to Jerusalem. He's, He's making his way to Jerusalem for the last time where he knows that he will be put to death. And he has taught his disciples much about discipleship. And he continues this theme here in this text that we have this morning. So as Jesus is teaching his disciples, and consequently all of us here today, what we find here is sort of a test. It's a test of true discipleship and what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
So from our scripture this morning, Jesus will present to you five ways to know if you are a true disciple of his, also known as counting the costs, counting the costs of following him. Let's begin with verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, oh, we got to stop. We got to stop there just for a moment. Because there is something significant about the fact that Luke mentions there were large crowds going along with Jesus. You know, we sometimes think that, that when we hear this uh, deal about large crowds being with Jesus, that these are all supporters of Jesus. Yes and no. Yes and no. You have to remember that people followed Jesus for a whole host of reasons, right? Some were following him. Why? Because he was the miracle worker. I mean, he's, he's feeding people, you know, and he's walking on water and he's healing the, the sick and, and driving demons out of folks. There would have been some that did believe that he was the long-awaited Jewish savior known as the Messiah. Some were following along because of his teaching. He was one who taught with authority. He taught things like repentance and faith and the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and belief in his good news, the gospel and what God expected of his followers, how to be a kingdom citizen. And the scriptures again tell us that people were amazed at his teaching. But then you also had the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees, didn't you, mixed in with that crowd. And frankly, they just wanted to stop him. They wanted to kill him. And they wanted to go along to see what evidence they might be able to kind of amass to make their case against him. Then, of course, you had his disciples. You had the twelve. And with the exception of Judas, they would have been true believers. And then you had disciples outside the twelve who called themselves disciples. But when push came to shove, what happened? Many fell away. Many left him. They abandoned Jesus and his teachings. We see this most notably in John 6, um, 66, after Jesus presented some, some teachings about him being the bread of life that were frankly hard for his followers to swallow. And it says in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So all of this to say, just remember that though you have these large crowds following Christ, going along with him, many claiming to be his followers, not all of them are true disciples. So here Jesus stops the crowd and he takes this opportunity to point out to them this fact and and in so doing challenges them to assess their own relationship with him, which you and I are now invited to do as well. So here's the first test question of true discipleship. Is Jesus your highest priority? Is Jesus your highest priority? Look back at verses 25 to 26. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Well, time out, Jesus. <laughs> time out. Wait a minute. What? I mean, seriously? I mean, that sounds kind of harsh, you know. I, I mean, I, I, I thought you were all about love. Love, love, love. Right? No. I mean, are you really saying that I should hate my relatives, uh, even my spouse, my kids? Come on, what gives? I'll tell you what gives. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Bookmark here, Luke 14. And turn to Matthew chapter 10. beginning in verse 34. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 34. Here, Jesus is teaching his 12 disciples specifically on discipleship when he says something very similar. Verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Whoa. Then in verse 37 comes our explanation for our text. Look at verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me 
is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There you have it. Right? The idea that we would love someone else, anything else, more than the Lord. Then it's, yeah, Houston, we got a problem. Right? And that's the point. This is what Jesus is getting at. There will be division over the gospel. No doubt about it. Oh, we see that much in our world today, right? And the simple truth is, there will be division over the gospel even in some of your families. And the reason for this is because the gospel affects a person's most basic views regarding even the meaning of life. Right? The gospel shapes and molds a person's worldview. How you see and view the world. It, it shapes what they think and what they, what they believe and why. It's part of their identity. It's who they are. It demonstrates that, that they believe in a creator God of the universe, of the earth, of, of people. And because of this, that people are then submissive to God, their creator. And not just God, but the only way to God is through who? His son, the Lord Jesus. Now, whereas an atheistic view of God says that there is no God, right? That, that the Big Bang and evolution are the facts. And because of this, we are all here by accident. Therefore, there is no creator that any of us have to answer to. We're just all on our own. We answer to no one except ourselves. Now, what's funny about this is ask an atheist where their moral compass comes from. Everyone has one. I mean, it has to come from somewhere. But see, the atheistic worldview says there's no such thing as morality. So where does it come from? Because you see, morality cannot just be rooted in the physical Morality has to be rooted in a soul, in a soul of which purely physiological creatures produced by accident can't possibly have. Yes, the differences that people will have over the gospel will always be extreme. They will be divisive, even amongst families. And again, I know that many of us have had this experience. Does this mean that we back away from the gospel Absolutely not. Does this mean that we don't share the gospel with our unbelieving, even antagonistic family members? Of course not. Think about it, friends. What's the only other option? That you don't speak of the gospel to them and just kind of wave at them as they sink deeper into the pit of hell? That's your only other option. All of this to say, Jesus must be your highest priority, even when there's division. Jesus is making it clear that your loyalty must be first and foremost to him. You must stand up for Jesus. And, and, and in this, friends, Jesus has to become your number one love. He has to be the love of your life. He, your love for him must be greater than your love for your family. Your love for him must be greater than, than your, your love of your job, your career, or, or your school, or sports, or hobbies. Yes, that includes fly fishing and pickleball. It does. I keep telling myself that. More than possessions, more than money, you fill in the blank, right? Whatever that is for you. And if it's not, you can't be his disciple. You cannot be his disciple. In order for him to be your highest priority, you have to first believe in what? The gospel. The good news that you are a sinner through and through. I am a sinner at my core. There's nothing any of us can do but sin. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But thankfully, God so loved the world, didn't he? That he would give his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him, put their faith in him, their trust, their hope, everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will have eternal life. They will not perish, but have eternal life, right? 
So you have to put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross to save you. That he died in your place. That he took your sin upon himself. That he suffered on your behalf for you on that cross. And after he died, they put him into the ground. And for three days he lay there until he miraculously resurrects from the dead. Conquering sin, conquering death, proving once and for all that he indeed is God Because who else can resurrect themselves from the dead but God? And you too then can have the gift of resurrection and eternal life because of Christ. Furthermore, the scripture teaches that salvation and being a disciple are intrinsically linked. The whole point of being saved is to become Jesus' disciple, his follower. I mean, this this is what the great commission of getting the gospel out to the world was all about, right? In Matthew 28, 19 to 20. It doesn't say, go therefore and get people saved. Get them merely to, to, to say they believe in the facts of Jesus dying and being resurrected for them. No. It says, go therefore and do what? Make disciples. Included in that is, yes, that they would be saved. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So friends, hear this. You cannot separate salvation and being a disciple of Jesus. It doesn't work. To be saved is to become a disciple. I I just don't, I do not see how, how such a thing as what we might call easy believism in the Bible. You know, this belief that you can agree with the facts of Jesus dying for your sins and resurrecting for your eternal life. And, and this gives you salvation, but you, you just don't have to do what the Bible says. You know, that's going to come later on, that being a disciple thing. It's, it's on down the line. I don't have to worry about that right now. And again, the Bible, Jesus just flat out say no. Salvation and discipleship is an issue of faith. It's an issue of the heart. It is not merely of the mind. It's not merely intellectual. It's not simply an agreement of facts. We read this in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. Paul says, but what does it say? What do the scriptures say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and what? believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It's got to come from the heart, not just the head. This is why James is so adamant about the fact that true saving faith will always be backed up by works because in being saved you again become that disciple that follower of jesus you cannot separate the two if you are a true disciple of christ then your love and your loyalty will be to him above all others he is to be your highest priority the second test question is this Do you carry your own cross? Do you carry your own cross? Look at verse 27. You might have to flip back to our Luke passage there. But in Luke 14, verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus already said this basically back in Luke 9, verse 23. I'm going to turn there. You're welcome to, to, to turn with me. Actually, go ahead. Turn, turn with me too. Luke 9, verse 23. Luke 9, 23. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And now he is spending some alone time with his disciples. And he has just shared with them, even looking back to verse 22, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up. On the third day, look at verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, they would have understood the cross reference because he just explained his upcoming death, which they would have understood as being by crucifixion. 
this coming after Jesus refers to anyone that would follow Jesus, follow his ways. It means they would acknowledge Jesus as their teacher and that they would live in obedience to him. In other words, this is discipleship. And it's summarized here in this text in three ways in this Luke 9 passage. And the first is this. It's about self-denial. You must deny yourself. You say, well, okay, okay, but deny myself what? The context indicates the issue is a salvific one. It's about salvation. Verse 24 says that to gain life, meaning of the eternal variety, one must give it up. As one pastor has said, quote, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to disown one's natural, depraved, sinful self. It is to give up all dependence on and confidence in oneself and one's works to save, end quote. It's basically saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. You know, for the better part of my acting career, there was just no self-denial for Jesus. I mean, yeah, there just wasn't, you know, I... I took whatever kinds of roles that I wanted. Even when I, I, I first became a Christian, I was still kind of compartmentalizing, you know, my life, including my career. And, and you know, here's, here's my marriage, and here's my kids, and here's my hobbies, and here's my relationship with God, and here's my work. And I could always excuse things in my work category. Well, it's just my work. It has nothing to do with being a Christian. <laughs> Baloney, Right? I mean, I was able to justify doing ungodly movies and, you know, TV stuff and because it's just simply what I what I did. It's not who I was. There's just no self-denial. Needless to say, self-denial can be difficult. Extremely so. Friends, nowhere does the Bible say it's easy to become a Christian. In fact, just the opposite. In Luke 13, Jesus teaches the way to salvation is through a what? A big, wide highway? No, a narrow door, a narrow door. That's the way to salvation. And he says that many will seek to enter and not be able. They're going to miss it. They're not going to see it. They're not going to think that they can go through it or should go through it. In 1 Peter 4.18, Peter asks the rhetorical question, which is really a quotation from the book of Proverbs, when he says, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved... What will become of the godless man and the sinner? It's difficult for the righteous to be saved. Nowhere does it say once you become a Christian, hey, easy street, smooth sailing. Now, also in regard to discipleship from the Luke 9 passage, there's this issue of cross-bearing. Yeah, that sounds like a whole lot of fun, huh? Cross-bearing. The disciples understood the cross meant death. It meant death by crucifixion, death in a, in a torturous, agonizing, humiliating way. And criminals that were sentenced to crucifixion had to carry their own crosses, showing their submission to the government. In Jesus' case, he was an innocent man who would suffer rejection, public shame, and humiliation, and of course, death, which brings about another nuance for our cross-bearing, that we too will innocently suffer things. We will innocently suffer. We will be rejected. You will be shamed. You will be humiliated, not for something you did wrong, but for something you did right. The cause of Christ. You know, we love to say this phrase, Oh, yeah, that's my cross to bear. And it's usually in regard to situations that frankly don't even come close to persecution. You don't get free snacks at work. Well, that's my cross to bear, I guess. You have a, a maybe a demanding teacher at school, you know, or, or your mom's a demanding teacher at home. That's my cross to bear. Kids won't listen to you. Oh, that's my cross to bear. You know, the drive through line at the Starbucks on Sunday morning is six cars deep. That's my cross to bear, you know. You get into church and your usual seat is taken. (laughs) No, that's where it ends. I stopped there. I'm not bearing any stinking cross. I want my seat. (laughs) Folks, as a Christian... To take up one's cross 
means that you are no longer living for yourself. You are no longer living for yourself. This concept reinforces self-denial and submission to God. It means that you have a willingness to endure even daily all that Jesus endured. All that he endured, all the hostility and the rejection and the hatred and the reproach and the shame and the persecution and the suffering, even death, if that's what God calls you to. It said that the, uh, the knights of King Arthur's court, when they would return from the battlefield, if they did not bear in their bodies some kind of scar of the battle, they were thrust out by the king with the command, go get your scars and sent back into battle. You know, I was thinking about this. I, I got to be honest with you and say, I, I can't really say that I have many cross-bearing scars. Even as an actor, I was only a believer for about the last third of my career. So I just want to share with you just a quick illustration of somebody I know that, that did. And even at a young age, my oldest, my oldest up in Weaverville, uh, had, had come into his own faith. And in the latter part of his high school years, um, was in with a group of AP students. And they all had the same classes together and, and led by their teacher who knew his stuff, but was just uh, famously atheistic and, uh, and just did not, uh, he and the class really did not share my, my son's biblical views on, on many social topics and issues of the day, which they would often discuss. And you know what? He took a beating. He got beat up for it. I think that was kind of the neat thing about him being able to go to the master's university is he got beat up in high school and then gets to go to college and go, oh, oh, I'm with like-minded folks being taught now a biblical worldview. Even one time, one time they were talking about homosexuality in the class and he came to me and he said, dad, didn't Al Mohler, doesn't he talk stuff about homosexuality or have a paper? I said, yeah, and I pulled up a paper for him printed it off, gave it to the oldest. He goes into school the next day and shows it to his teacher. Teacher says, hey, you want to read it in front of the class? He did. He got beat up. You know what? Not literally. Here's the cool thing. Next Shepherds Conference, he got to meet Al Mohler and tell him that story. Very cool. What will your cross-bearing scars be? Or what have they been? Are you willing to endure what Jesus endured? Thirdly, in this little subcategory we're on, carrying your cross and coming after Jesus means obedience. Here still in Luke 9, it means obedience. It stands to reason that as one practices self-denial and submitting themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, and one takes up their cross of suffering on behalf of Christ, you would imagine that obedience is pretty well at work, wouldn't you? Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, that only those who do the will of his Father will enter heaven. In the same sermon, Luke 6, 46, has Jesus asking, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The implied answer is, if you really believe Jesus to be your Lord, you will do what he says. You will obey him. In John 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in 1510, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then in verse 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And of course, part of the problem with all of this is that we, we think that, that, that God's commands, man, they're just going to take away our fun. I want to have fun in this life, you know. Except we forget what 1 John 5, 3 promises. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They are not burdens to weigh us down, friends. Just the opposite. It is what releases us and gives us life and peace and hope and joy. I mean, it couldn't be more clearer that for the, the disciple of Jesus, those who would follow him must be committed in their obedience to him. Now, this is the kicker, isn't it? Because, see, people don't want to deny themselves anything. They certainly don't want to suffer, let alone for someone they can't, you know, physically see, touch. And they definitely 
definitely don't want somebody else telling them what to do. Oh, no. This is people's rejection of Christ that's explained so well in Romans chapter 1. But here's what they don't get. They don't get that to be a follower of Jesus and to do these things out of love and obedience to him, denying themselves and carrying their cross and living in obedience to Christ will actually benefit them. And not just in this life, but in their eternal life to come. Amen. Charles Spurgeon said, there are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. Back to our Luke 14, Luke 14, number three. Have you counted the costs of following Christ? Have you counted the costs of following Christ? Look at verse 28. Verse 28, chapter 14. Jesus says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he is enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, oh, this man began to build a tower. This man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 31, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends his delegation and asks for terms of peace. We get this, right? Jesus' point is that for anything of importance, you count the cost and you proceed accordingly you know we, we've had to count our costs at different times i remember back when when uh julie um had our second child and and she was still working at the time and and i was doing my acting stuff and kind of being house husband uh, uh along with that but she and i both had the conviction to to have her stay at home she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and so we had to count the cost we had to count the literal cost of losing her income, but here was the, the cool thing. When you start figuring into, you know, daycare and, and you know, uh, clothing for work and mileage and drive time to work and lunches and blah, 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 Actually, it was going to be more profitable for her to stay home than to work was basically the situation. Even when I left the entertainment industry and, and took the call to go into the pastorate, there were costs that we had to count, things that we knew that we would be giving up or leaving by the wayside, and we had to make sure we understood what those were and were we willing to commit. Did you know that your salvation comes with a cost? Hmm. It comes with a... Well, yes, of course, there was an enormous cost to Christ... For your salvation. But there is also a cost to you. Now I am not saying in any way. Shape or fashion that you work for your salvation. But by accepting God's free gift. Of forgiveness of sins. And eternal life. You are making the decision. To be his disciple. To follow him. And that frankly comes. With a cost here on earth. Namely, in the realm of persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Notice that little word, all. All. Frankly, friends, we've you know mentioned this at the beginning, but we can all feel the heat getting turned up out there in the world. Hello, we had Jack Phillips here with us for a Sunday. What did we learn from that? And he still has the heat being turned up. And there are florists behind him and photographers who, because of their faith, refuse to participate in gay weddings. Which you think, that's really an oxymoron, right? Because in God's eyes, there is no such thing. And who, because of this, have lost their businesses. You might think back a number of years ago to the gal Kim Davis, the county clerk of Rowan County, Kentucky, who was jailed for denying to issue marriage licenses to gay couples. And we've started to see other forms of persecution for those who, because of their faith, take an opposing view on whether it be social issues out there or hot-button topics, even including things like politics or even vaccine mandates. Pastors in other countries have already been charged with hate crimes for preaching and teaching the Bible. People have been beheaded for being a Christian. How about some of our brothers and sisters, our Christian brothers and sisters stuck in Afghanistan? The costs are high. 
The costs are high. I remember hearing this story. This blew me away. You might remember it too. Atlanta Fire Chief Kevin Cochran was fired by the mayor of Atlanta because of his personal views about biblical sexual morality that he expressed in a Christian men's devotional book written in his personal time where the issue of biblical sexuality was briefly mentioned in the 162-page book. He was never accused of expressing those views while on the job. He was never accused of proselytizing or of doing anything that be con- construed as discriminatory, even after a city investigation showed that Cochran did not discriminate against anyone. The mayor still fired him, citing as the basis, ironically, the need to tolerate diverse views. Have you considered the cost. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts, friends, because it's going to be a bumpy ride and you will have a day, a time, when you will be challenged to stand up for biblical truth, whatever the cost. And yes, maybe even your livelihood will be threatened. The fourth test question of discipleship is this. Is following Jesus worth more to you than the pleasures of the world? Is following Jesus worth more to you than the pleasures of the world? We see this in verse 33 when Jesus says, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. If you were out there to help us move into our new house, you would have been like, Whoa, Pastor Jay, you, oh, you don't, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> You need to give up some possessions. I mean, are we to take this literally? What about the followers of Jesus who had houses and, you know, money and who would even bankroll some of the ministry? Well, like before, Jesus is making a point here. And again, it's about self-denial. We we have the parables of the hidden treasure and the costly pearl explain this well when jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a mound found and hid again and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field and again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and upon finding one pearl of great value he went and sold all that he had and bought it You might remember the rich young ruler who in his mind had done everything he needed to in order to, uh, he he had done everything in his mind that he would inherit eternal life until Jesus says, "Uh, uh, uh, there's one more thing, one more thing that you need to do to demonstrate that you are a true disciple of mine. Sell all that you have, give it all to the poor and come and follow me. Man went away sad because he was very rich. So you see, part of the problem with the desire for the things of the world is our love and pursuit of them and how easily this can just kind of overtake us. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not about, you know, being rich or having, you know, big houses or nice cars, jewelry or other toys. The poorest person can sinfully pursue wealth and possessions. And not just possessions, it could be power or status or prestige, you name it. Whatever the world has to offer that sinfully appeals to you. Remember the seed that fell among the thorns. This is the person who hears God's word, but quote, the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Sometimes somebody will ask me, you know, do you miss Hollywood? Do you miss doing what you did? Do you miss entertainment industry, you know, acting, that sort of thing? And I will, I will tell them this, you know, I, I love the art of acting and the craft of, of, of filmmaking. And, but the Lord also revealed to me that there was much of it that was also about satisfying my own worldly pleasures. I mean, I, I wanted it all. I, you know, I, I didn't want to just act. I, you know, I wasn't asked for much. I, I thought, you know, 300,000 a year would be comfortable, you know. I wasn't asking for a million bucks. Come on. I wasn't at, you know. I mean, I wanted to have, you know, regular work. I didn't want to have to keep auditioning for work. I wanted that, you know. And, I, you know, I, yeah, I wanted successful work. I didn't want to be doing junk, you know. And, 
Oh, yeah, okay, I did have my Academy Award speech already written out, you know, ready to go, just, you know, in case it happens suddenly. But, friends, we always have to keep our priorities straight, don't we? Always, always, always. We have to seek after heavenly treasure that is going to last for all eternity, right? This is the hope of being a true disciple. So I know that it seems like, oh, that's a lot of don'ts, you know, all, the, all morning, Pastor Jay. Oh, no, there's great hope. There is great, wonderful hope to be had in being a true disciple of Christ. As Peter said at the end of his first letter to those who are enduring all kinds of persecutions after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen? Last point. What happens if you fail the test? What happens if you fail the test? Look at verse 34. Luke 14. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil... Meaning, let me interject here as a as a, a fertilizer or for the new manure pile in parentheses, we could say as it would never decompose, it is thrown out. In other words, if you claim to be salt, that is a disciple of Jesus, but you have failed this four question test, then you would have to ask yourself if you really are a true follower as you have no flavor. And if you have no flavor, you have no ability to be useful. In fact, you're not even good for the fertilize the soil with or for the manure pile pile because you are flavorless and you will not decompose. Those who masquerade as true disciples but who are really imposters offer nothing of value to Christ or his kingdom and he says should simply be thrown out. The other option might be that you're a true believer in sin. For that, you would need to confess, repent, and return to the Lord. Last part of verse 34. Look there. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There are steep consequences for those who masquerade as disciples. Friends, don't wear the costume. Be the real deal. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ and become a true disciple of his, ready to work hard for the kingdom and to receive his blessings. And if you believe yourself to be a true Christian, but you are not passing the test, then you need to confess Your sin, you need to repent of that sin and then receive his blessings. And if you know yourself to be a disciple, a true follower of Christ, you have passed the test. Hallelujah. Then how about this? Why don't you ask the Lord how you can excel still more? Even more treasure stored up in heaven for you. Maybe to that end, you might disciple Yourself, somebody else, encourage another brother or sister in their walk to be followers, true disciples of Christ. As we wrap up this morning, I want to read to you just a short excerpt from uh, John MacArthur's book, Hard to Believe. How churches have played loose with the gospel and watered down what it means to be a true disciple. He writes, The first role of successful merchandising is to give consumers what they want. If they want bigger burgers, make their burgers bigger. Designer bottled water and six fruity flavors, done. Minivans with 10 cup holders, give them 20. You've got to keep the customer satisfied. You've got to modify your product and your message to meet their needs if you want to build a market and get ahead of the competition. Today, this same consumer mindset has invaded Christianity. 
For instance, if the message is too confrontational or too judgmental or too exclusive, scary, unbelievable, hard to understand, or too much anything else for your taste, churches everywhere are eager to adjust that message to make you more comfortable. It's Christianity for consumers. Christianity light. Which is to say, it's the redirection, watering down, misinterpretation of the biblical gospel in an attempt to make it more palatable and popular. It tastes great going down, it settles light. It seems to to salve your feelings and scratch your itch. It's custom tailored to your preferences. But that lightness will never fill you up with the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ Because it is designed by man and not God, and it is hollow and worthless. In fact, it's worse than the worthless because people who hear the message of Christianity light think they're hearing the gospel, think they're being rescued from eternal judgment, when in fact, they're tragically being misled. The true gospel is a call to self-denial. It is not a call to self-fulfillment, end quote. Amen, indeed. Friends, is Jesus your highest priority? Do you carry your own cross? Have you counted the costs of following Christ? Is following Christ worth more to you than the pleasures of this world? And what will happen to you if indeed you fail the test? Let's pray. Father, wow, some sobering words. From your gospel this morning. From the Lord Jesus Christ himself. About the cost of following you. Of following Christ. Lord, may we do all of these things to count the costs. All the while never forgetting the tremendous blessings that you have in store for us. Oh, Father, we look forward to our eternal life with you. And until then, that you will just continue to give us that blessing of peace, the peace that passes all understanding, hope and joy in knowing Christ. We thank you and praise you. To your son's name be the glory. Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.